The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Tate Cast. Everyone who tweeted at me and said this would be a one episode long podcast series, uh, suck it. You were probably right, but honestly, the response to the first episode with uh, Michael was pretty good. Not going to promise weekly updates to this or anything, but uh, I talked to my Twitter friend and and sometimes nemesis, uh, Josh Hermsayer. I actually don't know how to pronounce it. Hermsmeyer. Hermsmeyer. Okay. That would, that would make sense. Uh, at Frisco Josh on Twitter. I sent him a message on Twitter. I said, I think the people need to hear us talk about Bitcoin. He said he's in. And so we're recording this. We're recording this on a Tuesday. I probably won't publish it until a Wednesday, but, uh, yeah, he's here from rotoviz.com from 444.com. Where all do you publish content right now? This year, it's going to be at 444 and then on my site uh, for kind of general football is airyards.com, but the, all the fantasy stuff is on 444 this year. Stats also redirects to airyards.com? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, no. So anytime you want to be reminded of where you should go if you're a loser and, and you need your stats, that's the URL to use. I will say every year in daily fantasy football, there's a new metric that becomes the talking point, right? Uh, game script has been a big one or game flow. Uh, that was a big one two seasons ago, but you became the meme of daily fantasy football last year, or at least air yards became the meme. There was not a daily fantasy show, a tout show, a tout article that did not include air yards at some point. So congratulations on the memification of your statistic. Hey, I mean, I guess that's, that's the goal. I don't know. Uh, and no, I, I was really excited about the uptake last year. I, I didn't know if DFS would take it. I honestly didn't. I actually had a conversation with Evan Silva about it. I said, it's so strange. This seems to be such a, an important metric to understand how coaches and QBs are thinking and what their intent is. It seems like it'd be natural for DFS. So, so to see it get some uptake was, uh, I thought, rational, which is good. Because I, kind of, I, I kind of put DFS a little higher in terms of rationality than, than standard Twitter and fantasy. Really depends on where you go. It really depends on, on where you approach that market because there are some very rational actors in that market and some very irrational actors in that market. But uh, let's just go ahead and let's get into it. The first thing I want to ask you is what was the impetus into you becoming the Air Yards guy? I, don't, I was saying before we got here, I don't know much about your journey into the fantasy realm. So let's hear it. Yeah, so I used to do baseball stuff. So about 10 years ago, I was a sabermetrics dude, and, and I did that. And uh, eventually, my injury database got kind of uh, – it was, it was basically stuffed into Pakoda. And, uh, okay. And so a bit, bit after that, I tried to sell whatever it was I was working on, and I moved on because I started a, a new company, and I took up all my time for about eight years. And then two years ago – um, I started in on football cause it just seemed like it was, it was just, there was not a lot of new 
thought into the stats and it just seemed like a, an area ripe for, and it's the number one sport in the US and it just seemed like there wasn't a lot of good data um, to kind of analyze on it. Anyway, and I found a data set uh, going back to 2009 with air yards in it. And uh, I thought that was interesting. And one of uh, the pieces of air yards, the most important piece kind of counterintuitively is incomplete air yards. You can get completed air yards by subtracting yak from receiving yards. Sure. But the incomplete part, the most like inconsequential you would think, the most inconsequential part um, was actually being charted by Elias and published by the NFL. And, and so when I added those two together, instead of looking at it from the quarterback's point of view, because the stability of the statistic and the predictiveness of the statistic is not great for quarterbacks, it actually is hugely predictive and hugely important for wide receivers. And so taking the air yards and, and putting them in a receiving context, um, which something Mike Clay did to a certain extent with ADOT, um, was exciting. It was a rich source of insights, but really it wouldn't have happened if I didn't stumble across the data set. Pretty interesting. I had no idea you had a baseball background. I mean, what's fucking worse than baseball? I hate baseball. It's you know, terrible. You know, I fell in love with, uh, with metrics and, and, and uh, analytics because of Billy Bean. Um, you know, I grew up cheering for Ricky Henderson and, and then when Billy Bean took over and he turned that, that shanty town into a perennial contender, that was really cool. And, you know, when Moneyball came out, like most nerds was just devoured it and got into it soon after. And, um, the thing about baseball stats at the time was there was a lot of very, very sophisticated, um, analysts doing some really sophisticated work and I was behind on my abilities, my skill set. Sure. So I, I couldn't contribute the way I might have if I was had my skill set and uh, went back 15, 20 years. Um, so again, when, when I did develop that finally after another 15, 20 years, um, it seemed like with, with football, I could, I could really uh, I could make some hay. So that's, that's basically my story. What's always been astounding to me is that the, the revenue that football generates and the attention that football generates, I mean, it dwarfs anything. Like the NBA conference finals are going on right now. And I could walk into any bar in Kansas City that I live in, and the chances of someone knowing all four teams that are in the conference finals, I would say maybe 50-50 if they're closer to my age, if they're in their 20s. But if I asked them to name all four teams in the Chiefs division, that would be like 95% of, of at least men in Kansas City would be able to. But But there's – I mean, can you think of – any league that's done a disservice to stats the way that the NFL has, like they're, they, they release these next generation stats and they're taking them away again next year. It, why do you think that football is so anti-intellectual? What, what about the sport of football makes it so anti-intellect? I think a lot of it has to do with um, the inability of our current and and, and past generation of statistics to actually describe what happens on a football field in a way that makes sense to the people who actually have to game plan. Um, if you're a football guy and someone's telling you that the only way that numbers can describe um, uh, how, how your players are playing um, uh, are yards and touchdowns and yards per carry and yards per attempt, I'd roll my eyes too. I would know that there's so much more to it. Um, and, and, you know, and, and really air yards and a dot only get one step forward, which is kind of understanding the types of routes that receivers are running. And so you're getting a little closer to what football actually is. And now that we have charting of the actual routes, 
and we can actually develop efficiency metrics that can compare them apples to apples, now we're getting much closer and probably close enough for analytics to be able to make some pretty compelling statements about how football should be played. And, and I think that's, that's really what's exciting and that's where we're getting close to. Going back to the NFL, um, so you have all these people who've come up with that idea of statistics not being able to properly describe the game. And, and now we have these new statistics and I think of it in terms of a pure business uh, perspective. They're getting these, this mountain of data plopped on their laps and they see it as a cost center. They see it as a problem that they have to solve, not as an opportunity. And it means they're gonna have to hire someone. They're gonna have to have some nerd tell them something that they don't even really believe in at this point. They just see it as a nonsense distraction from all the things that they know they have to do um, to win football games and they know they're not gonna be there very long if they don't do it. So you need someone in ownership who, who takes a larger view um, who's encouraging that kind of thinking within the organization and, and isn't afraid to spend a little money on, uh, on human capital to, to actually invest in, in the opportunity. I have a, an interesting anecdote in that regard. I was told by someone at the NFL uh, before our relationship went sour that um, at the Combine this year, the um, NFL got together and they invited every team to send analysts so that they could get a briefing, kind of a dog and pony show on the new next-gen data. Now, every team has been getting their own data, right? For the last two years, they've gotten all their next-gen data for their players. But the entire league is going to get all the team's data for the past three years, and they got it a month and a half ago. So this was back at the Combine. They're telling them what's going to happen and, you know, how it's going to go down. Please send your best analysts, you know. And 11 people showed up out of 32 teams. Three of them were from New England. That sounds about right. Unbelievable. Uh, Bill Belichick's going to run circles around the league until he decides he's tired of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, something that I've always believed also is that losing in professional football is harder than losing in baseball and basketball. I, I don't have a strong enough opinion on hockey or n- enough knowledge as to how the cap system works, but losing in baseball and in basketball First of all, there's still personal incentive to perform well on a losing team in basketball because you can still generate a a good contract for your next team while playing on a losing team. And in baseball, if you are a major league player on like a reasonable contract, you're making millions of dollars kind of sort of regardless, and it doesn't require as much effort. But in professional football, if you're losing – like you're – I mean, what is it? Like a 30% chance that you're not even going to finish the season. And I think – the the Browns experiment really illustrated that because I would you and I would probably say Sashi was doing a great analytics job and real football people were like morally offended by him sending out a team to lose 16 games on purpose I have a I don't want to nuanced take on Sashi so analytics are not a good in and of themselves right it's a tool for thinking about how to solve problems evidence-based thinking, um, not going with emotion, trying to put guardrails around your thinking so you don't make the catastrophic mistakes, right? And that's, that's, that's kind of how I view it. And that's just one part of management. Sure. He's a general manager or he's a vice president or whatever the hell he was. But there's a whole other part to the job and that's politics. It's dealing, interpersonal relationships is dealing with the people you have to deal with. If you're going to do something no one else has ever done, that means you're 
by definition doing something hard. You don't have a roadmap. So you need to eliminate all the potential, and you need to think about this as you're going in, all the potential pitfalls as best you can. I mean, that is also evidence-based analytical thinking. And I think what he thought is he could just sit down, do everything according to the numbers, not really pay attention to the culture he was stepping into. Sure. I've heard that he was nine to five in it and that kind of thing. And it just, so I, I have a nuanced take. I don't disagree with anything Sashi did in terms of his decision-making or the analytical bent that he took. Um, I just think that if you get kicked out two years in when everyone knew it was a three-year plan, you must have done something horribly wrong inside. He must have, he must have just rubbed all of the real football people horribly wrong. That, that to me is the simplest explanation. Yeah, I'm with you. It, had to be, it has to be something like that, right? I mean, I don't yeah. know the exact details, and certainly the owner came out and he said it, it wasn't the fact that he you know, sabotaged the trade. Uh, for was it McCarran? McCarran, yeah. Yeah. So I, he came out and said that was not the reason. Is that true? I don't know, but he, at least he came out and said it. So, it, but I think it was something like that. So, kind of on this topic, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you think that analysts make when parsing data and creating models for football specifically? So, for football, I, the way I view modeling and all that is to quantify uncertainty, to, just to tell us just exactly how dumb we are. And once you get your head around the uncertainty, then you can start to make more reasonable decisions and it, courageous decisions, in my opinion. When you know the odds, like Han Solo didn't want to know the odds. When you know the odds, it, it, it's, it's brisk. It's butt puckering sometimes, knowing that you really don't have a firm way to go and you still got to make that decision. And so that's kind of the leadership part, right? That's so now you have the best information you have. You've got to make a call. Your career is going to live or die on this call. Mm, that's tough stuff. I mean, that's the NFL. But I think the modeling at least gives you guardrails. It says, don't pick Josh Allen at 101, you know? I mean, and you don't make those mistakes. Um, and I think a lot of life's that way, right? I mean, your question that you wrote to me was like, and outside of football. But like, I think don't, don't get your girlfriend pregnant in high school. Don't marry the wrong person. Like, just avoid that stuff and maybe luck will have a chance to find you. Sure. Um, and, and so really that's how I view uh, analytics. And so on the other side of that coin is when your model spits out a prediction, you know, don't, you know, that's not the end of the story, right? That's, that's the beginning of the decision-making process. And, and, uh, and just because one guy is ranked ahead of another in your model doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn out that way in the end. And just really having that cognizant at every step of the process. That was my biggest. So like when Rotoviz first started, I, I didn't, I didn't build any models, but I definitely did some like aggregate sort of stuff, combining college production with, with size, speed, combine stuff for wide receivers. And that was easily my biggest mistake was not even trying to apply the nuance, just taking what was in the Excel spreadsheet and making that a hot take. Like uh, what, what would happen? You know, this was like, God, like 2013, 2014 was like these small school wide receivers who were probably just a little bit too good to be at a small school, you know, not in a power five school is they, they would just have like a 45% market share of everything that every game they would have three touchdowns and, and they obviously would be size speed freaks, but there was clearly something missing from their ability to play the game of football that 
does not show up in combine numbers that does not show up when you're analyzing. And that was, I mean, uh, every argument I ever got in on Twitter over that time frame was just because I was unable to apply that nuance at that time. So that's a, I think that's a really good point is to apply some, some football logic or just logic overall to the results that your model is giving you. Yeah. Or at least just be respectful of the idea that even if your model overall has a good fit and is probably correct on average, it doesn't mean you're going to be right on a particular player. And, um, and, and so it's, it's that humility that comes with it in a certain way, but also just know that you're, you're playing your edge, right? I mean, it's a small edge, but you're playing it. And if you do that enough in the long run, you'll have better outcomes. So, it, uh, I mean, people want to, people kind of come crazy. Sometimes they say things like, well, res- you say results don't matter. And you know, no, that's the thing. This result doesn't matter. You know, it's like you, you gotta, you gotta be. Uh, some people put it in Bayesian terms, like well, you have to hold on to your prior longer or something like that. But the, the idea is that you need a large sample of sucking before you can conclude you suck. And that's why poker had such a good run for so long and online is because people weren't sure that they were fish. And so while they figured that out, you know, the guys that actually were good were making quite a bit of money. And then when that stopped, then the legal. Uh, uh, that was those were glorious times when he, I'm a, a huge fish. Anyone who knows me will vouch for my fishiness, and even I was profitable at online poker back then. It's great, and so I mean, in, in, by the same token, you don't know you're good for a long time unless you're really good, and um, and and so I think it's that it's that understanding the uncertainty. So uh, you recently successfully fundraised for some proprietary NFL play level data. And uh, obviously I think the results of this could be a podcast in and of itself, you know, going to be funding stuff on your website all season long. But uh, just for the purposes of this podcast, what are two of the biggest fantasy actionable takeaways that you parsed out through that data? Well, this is the worst. I haven't even started yet. Um, they took a while. Sports Info Solutions took a while. To even get it to you? And get it to me, and then last week they updated it. So, in fact, no, 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 Monday they updated it. So I just downloaded a whole new set of data. So I haven't even started yet, but I, I can. I've already kind of discussed the kind of things I'm going to look at, um, and it's exciting. It really is exciting. There, it's just rich data on line play, uh, whether they're polling, whether it's zone blocking scheme. I got men in the box. I got a number of blockers. I've got. I've got actually at the play level um, uh, player participation data, which means when I have time, I can actually pull up NFL war and I actually figure out how much a lineman is worth. Things like that is going to be super, super cool. And uh, obviously the data is limited. It's only three years, but uh, I'm really excited for the future on that. And I wish I wish I had some insights to share, but uh, I just, I haven't gotten started yet. That kind of sounds to me, like some of the statistics that we see in baseball, like just thinking from a DFS perspective, like I can see six years down the line when play level data, if it ever does become more publicly available, people I know, I know you hate this from following you on Twitter, but people really overfitting the data, like the Buffalo bills are a polling guard team. They pull the guard on 70% of their running plays and the new Orleans saints defense allows 4.7 yards per carry on pulled guard run plays like i i'm just already envisioning a future where that is like people's dfs columns i mean so here's where i come down at some point i think the data will tell you things 
that will help you get inside the head of the coaches and coordinators because they have to simplify things for their players, right? Not every player on the field has an understanding of the game at the level of a coach. Right. So the way you teach is to simplify. I mean, the best coaches at the college level have been doing that inexorably simplifying the playbook into like numbers, like four or five numbers if it's an air raid. And so when you're on defense, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to simplify what your job is. Once you see a guy come at you after five, six yards and you're playing off, you know the route can only be three different things, and they're really trying to simplify the game. So I think at, some, at a certain point when we get data like that, I think it actually might be fruitful to say this is a power running team and their best play is this particular trap play or whatever it might be. And this team is particularly bad at because of their linemen and their personnel is particularly bad at defending that. I think that'd be insightful. I think that'd actually be something to bet on. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. We ha- and then you have to, then you have to look at things like if a team did run that play 70% of the time, what's the likelihood that they continue to do it? You know, right. That, that's the next step of it. Um, but I think that those are the type of questions we're going to be able to ask. And, uh, and that's, that's what's so exciting. I mean, it is, it is cool knowing that, there's so much unexplored, right? Like it's, it's not like baseball where like you kind of have access to all of the data that you could possibly want. I mean, there are still things in baseball that people would argue they could still have, but football clearly far behind that. So that is, it's pretty interesting. and makes me hopeful for the future. Uh, kind of along that line of thinking about the future, what stance do you have on uh, the take that quarterback is a really hard position to scout sort of by the numbers. I think a lot of people on Twitter who railed against the idea of analytics and of numbers first in fantasy football and real football five years ago have sort of come around to the idea that like thresholds and production is really important for running back and wide receivers. But I have not seen that come true with quarterbacks hardly at all. The, really the only time that's been a popular opinion has been because everyone liked to make fun of Josh Allen. But, but other than that, I can't ever really remember a time where it was popular to talk about quarterbacking college numbers. So I think um, that it's true. Quarterbacks are notoriously hard. I mean, just it's objectively true, right? I mean, look at the hit rate. Um, they're objectively hard to scout. And I think it's probably because that the biggest differentiator at the NFL level between a good, good quality NFL QB and the rest is mental. And, and so we need to figure out good proxies to understand what football IQ and mental processing looks like at the NFL level. And, um, and I think there are data that can help us with that, um, but I don't think they're the end of the story. Um, but I think the, the best is when you take completion percentage and you adjust it for context, and one of the most important is depth of target. Um, a player who gets a high completion percentage at every depth of target must have good mental processing. He must know that the deep ball on that pattern is not the side of the field to go to and check down. Or he must know that that middle pattern is going to spring open at a certain time because he has a high completion percentage there. And so that's the really, that's the whole, that's the whole game of being a QB. You're like right. a bartender, right? You're, you, you want to deliver the ball on time and on target so the guy can catch it, run after the catch and you can move the sticks. So if you have a high completion percentage by depth at each depth and Baker Mayfield was, is, is the poster. I mean, yeah, Baker is, Baker is like the goat QB prospect of all time. Like if you, I, if you, if you view things that way. Yeah. And, and that, does that mean that he's a lock to be good in the NFL? Hell no. And that's the, that's the, that's the part of it where you have to be human. Uh, you have some humility about it. 
um, you know, maybe he's a 65% play, you know, but that's way better than some of the other guys. And, and so that's why he's, he's the good number one pick um, because he's just, there's an edge there. To take they should have taken Rosen too. They should have <laughs> taken both. I, I like kind of really believe that. I totally believe that. I was, I was totally on board with that. I mean, like, why not? Oh, it, doesn't, you- it doesn't work because of the dynamics of like the way I think NFL locker rooms work. Like I actually do kind of believe that's a thing when it comes to NFL guys. Like the, the, the thing you will hear from really successful football players up and down from the fifties to now is like respect for the quarterback, the quarterback having command of the offense in the room. That's a real thing that really impacts performance on the field, which is crazy to think about. Well, let me give you an example of how I might do and and I will stipulate that that's true and that you need one leader in the locker room, just like you need one CEO and one president and one. Sure. Um, one of the things that people lament in the whole entire process of the draft is that once you get a guy in camp and you ask him to do things day after day, after 30 or so days, you have a much better idea about who he is. So what I would do is draft both. I work them both out all summer. And then I would feign like I fucked it all up and no, we don't have enough snaps and gosh, we were stupid. And I'd trade one of them Um, after I'd gathered more information. Now, maybe my 65% play on Baker is closer to an 80. Now I've seen him for 30 days. I asked him to do things. I've seen the way he interacts with my team. Now I've narrowed, narrowed the confidence. Is that worth trading Rosen for like a fourth rounder though? Because at that, because at that point, you're not getting anything close to fair market value. I don't. Think. I disagree. I think you trade Rosen at the end of camp. It could be a new team that had an injury. It could be a team like uh, the the Giants, right? And they they're willing to trade a, a future pick for you know a first um, because they got Loletta and Eli now. I mean, crazy thing. I I think you could still get huge value out of that. I think you could definitely get 1.04 value out of that. Um, if you're willing to take future picks or maybe another player. I think and, there's no way you get four quarters back for your dollar, but I think you could get 80 cents. Really? Because, I mean, uh, look what happened with Jimmy G. I mean, uh, I think quarterbacks are always going to be worth a but lot. But Jimmy G looked good, and and I know I know beyond a shadow of a doubt – any t- player that has been with Belichick for that long, he's going to be overvalued by the league based on like the mental acuity that they would think that he picked up. And also the shan- like everyone, San Francisco was right. Jimmy G is very for real. I think. I, th- I think he, it's more likely than not that he's for real. I but I'm still not convinced. I want to see more than six games, but, but the other part of it is you're assuming that that Rosen looked bad. I'm saying well, no one would see him, right? If it's just training camp, no one would see him. And you're and you're you're saying we fucked up. It's nothing to do with Rosen. He's great. We're gonna stick with our one on one. We gotta tra- or vice versa. And yeah, I mean, either way, I think you're admitting. I I think the I think it's not a it's a problem of perception, not a problem of reality. I think there's just, I think when you take two guys that close and then you say, we're choosing this guy, I think that's just a problem of perception saying this is not the guy. It could be, but I think there are ways to couch it such that you maybe don't lose too much. And, uh, and what you gain for that is a higher degree of confidence in the guy that you do keep. Um, and, and at that position, 
what's more important, right? And, and, and that's and that's the thing. I think from your side of the argument, your perspective would say getting a top ten quarterback in football is worth you can't even put it into numbers how valuable that is on the field. So take as many bites at the apple as possible. You would, you would give the one and the 1.4, even if you got nothing back for Rosen, you would give that both for Baker to be as good as Russell Wilson is. Yeah. And no one's ever tried it. So I think we're kind of like, you know, we're speculating on what the, well, the Redskins kind of did. It was a fourth, but still they, they did. And it worked out the exact opposite of how everyone thought it would. Which actually ties in perfectly to the next question I have on our agenda. Worst NFL move of the offseason and the best? Because I think the best is Cousins to the Vikings. I think that is the single-handed biggest tipper of of talent in the league. Yeah, I I think that was a great move. Um, But for me, the most exciting move and therefore the best move, (laughs) because I I have no idea how everything is going to work out, was Mayfield at 101. I thought that was a super exciting move by the Browns when everyone thought they were going to, you know, be more football guy, you know, and, uh, and take take Darnold. Yeah. Darnold, or maybe, I mean, I guess it was never going to be Rosen just because of the question marks around his personality, which I think are kind of overstated. I think they're super overstated because he's actually, I I don't, I don't know. I like, I thought Rosen is better than Darnold for sure. I don't know about for sure, but I, I edged towards Rosen as a better football player. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, but Darnold, I mean, look, anyway, I, I think it, I think it was, it was a triumph of logic that he went 101 in my opinion. So that was my, that was my top thing. And then, and then 102 right after was uh, just a, a triumph of idiocy. It was just taking Saquon as good as he is, as amazing, uh, uh, an athletic talent as he is taking him at 1.02. I just think is insane. Yeah. I mean, um, that was so horribly stupid. It was like unreal. Yeah, when you have Eli in his dotage and, and, and you have one of the best wide receivers in the league and you don't really have a great rushing attack prior to this, which means you don't have a great line because running backs aren't the cause of running success in, in football for the most part. So I, just throwing in Saquon I don't think is going to make you a great running team, um, even, even though he is a great talent. So I just it was just a bad move all the way around. And then, of course, Gettleman. Air keyboarded it afterwards. And- yeah, Gettleman being like, "I'm this is a slam dunk pick," and he's going to be able to take it to the fans too. He's going to be like, yeah. "Look, he had sixteen hundred yards. He scored twelve touchdowns. He was great. How could you? How could you be mad at me? My pick yeah. did great." Yeah, I guess. So. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Eli has like five point eight yards per attempt. <laughs> right, right. He's just marginally better than running the ball. That's fantastic. And uh. I hate to say this because I still don't think he's very good, but Sammy Watkins in Kansas City is like an amazing fit. Hmm. They're just gonna, I think they're just gonna run like an air raid. Like it's gonna, it's gonna be pretty intense. Like I think their their base set is going to be Kelsey, Watkins, Hill, Hunt, and then kind of just rotate, you know, Demetrius Harris or whoever else in that third spot. And it's like, it's gonna be nuts. And Mahomes, I think, is quite good. Four verts is a great play. Uh, I bet they'll run it quite a bit. I mean, Kelsey in the seam and those two burners on the outside. I mean, that's that's scary. And this is like going to be Watkins' like best fantasy year, and people are just going to be trolling me. And I like, I like already hate it. I'm like really not enjoying it. <laughs> uh, okay, last up, uh, something I wanted to disagree with you about for sure. Uh, I am aligned with you on like a pretty big percentage of NFL takes. I think you and I kind of come 
from the same school of thought about football and kind of the way to analyze the game. But I do have a big disagreement with you on the idea that fading the combine outright is good. I definitely think there are loads of examples you can point to of like false flag sort of things. But I think that if you're starting with the idea that I would rather focus on something tangible, which is production and athleticism, I I guess the biggest thing I disagree with, and I've heard other smart people say this too, but just that the athleticism that is tested at the combine is not the athleticism that you need in football. And I would like to hear your, your larger thesis on that opinion first. Okay. So I I think the problem with the combine is twofold is that all the reasons why people say it's good and that it's a controlled environment where you've eliminated all the confounders and you're just testing the one thing, um, which is speed or, you know, agility is more proxy. And so it's a little difficult, more difficult there. And we see it in the results in terms of predicting football um, production down the road. So let's just talk about the 40. And uh, so you've eliminated all the confounders and now you're just testing speed. And I think what you find is that in football, that's actually one of the smallest parts of success is pure speed. And that it's all the other things that the confounders that you removed from the test, it's actually dealing with those things are what makes a player good on an NFL football field. And so if the choice for me is between the combine and no data, give me the combine. If the choice for me is between the Reese's uh, senior bowl on field player tracking data and speed data and the combine, give me the senior bowl every day. And the reason why is because you're actually getting data in situ. You're actually getting the thing itself measured on the field of play and you're getting it. And this is the other part of it. Instead of just two samples, you're getting it hundreds of samples overall and and maybe dozens of samples per player. Um, Again, with people trying to hurt them and tackle them in pads, not going straight line, um, going left to right and trying to find open field so they can get a straight line burst. Um, So for all of those reasons, um, I fade the combine when I have other data that contradicts it. I think if there was player tracking data for like all the power five schools, I think that the combine could be, I I definitely would still want to know. I would still want to have access to that data because I guess what the combine has been useful for me for is it, it will show you some outliers. Like if you see a guy who's 219 pounds who runs a four, three, like I just think that's notable kind of regardless of what his college production was. And if it matches with college production, you know, you have Jeff Janice or Julio Jones or whoever, but it's very helpful for ruling guys out. And that was what I found most like when I first started looking into football data when I was in college is you could be like, there's just no way that a guy at this size or at this speed or with this agility, you can basically be like the chances of him succeeding just don't exist. Like uh, who's the Ram, the Philip Dorsett, the guy who was the first round pick for the Colts, like anyone who was into data was just like, this is like the worst pick ever. It's just like, this guy's never going to see the field. And that was always what I, so I guess in a way, I'm using the combine to fight guys to fade as opposed to identifying who, like I would still lean on production first before the combine. What's interesting about the combine is you have to be invited. So there's already true. A there's, there's a, a bias. A, no, well, there's a culling process that's already occurred. And so you're really looking at a really small sample of 
of college players. And I think if you, if you embiggen the sample and you were actually getting lots of college a players. A perfectly that, cromulent word. Yeah, right. I, I, think you would, I think you would find that, that, that pure athletic testing is actually even less um, uh, predictive um, because I think if you included those people without that culling that occurred, without that judgment that occurred by the scouts uh, ahead of time, that you would actually find that just being fast at the combine really doesn't mean much in terms of football because there's so much other stuff that goes along with it, that mental process and the skill, the deception at the line if you're a, a, a wide receiver. Um, I think with running backs, it might, it might be the case that uh, you would actually find some, some hidden gems. But again, we have the uh, – who, uh, who was that guy at uh, – the big guy, was it Watson? Um, at, uh, at a D2 school, and he had just had off-the-charts measurables, and he hasn't been able to crack a lineup. Terrell Watson, was it? I, know, I, can't I mean, that's a, that's a guy. Terrell, I know Terrell Watson is a player. I can't say who he plays for. Yeah, yeah, I know he's bounced around the league, and he followed a coach around, I believe this is the guy I'm thinking of. But anyway, he never cracked the lineup. And, and I think – so I think there's more to it. And you, you, we've already talked about it. But, you know, um, the athletic testing is important. But when you actually get a guy on the field of play and you measure him as fast, someone like Hunt, who didn't measure as fast but is actually very fast on the field, um, and, you know, it, it kind of puts paid to the idea that you're, you're, you're really measuring something super important. Now, faster, better than slower? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But – you got to be careful about who you're ruling out sometimes if you put that threshold too high um, because you may eliminate some guys who are actually good at football. I actually think the position that it's most helpful with is tight ends just because a lot of colleges don't even use their tight ends. Like a lot of guys that you would think of as being very good NFL tight ends did not have production in college. And so, and like you don't really have a great idea of their game speed or of anything because. And a lot of these guys, until they get into the NFL, don't even know how to run routes. They don't know where to be so much. And so I actually, like, uh, uh, Gesicki, the, the Dolphins tight end, like, right. I like I just think he's going to be great just based on the fact that, like, it's hard for someone that's that monstrous to, like, not be great. Yeah, actually, I'm actually high on him. And, and I well, for fantasy, I don't know about a real-life football. I think he's going to limit what they can do on offense a little bit because – um, I'm not sure they're going to go with air raid ideas over in Miami. But. Well, they're pretty limited already. Yeah. So I, I think no one would, on that team is good. Yeah. I think Kenyon Drake is pretty good. I think they would rather have him help in the running game. If I'm being honest, like just as that's the way they think. And so him being limited in that regard might limit his snaps, but anyway, he's going to start. And I think, I think we'll be able to find out pretty quick. Um, if a guy with his athleticism is going to be like Evan Ingram or, or if he's just going to be, I don't know who's a, who's a bus that was hugely athletic recently. Oh, I mean, there's a hundred of them. The guy on the Saints, I can't even remember now. Oh, yeah. uh, Josh Hill. Yeah. yeah so. Big Josh Hill fan. <laughs> all, all these guys, all these tight ends who have like insane athletic testing, who never did anything. I, I like love them. They've been yours. Yeah. Like I still think Logan Thomas is going to be a tight end in the NFL. Probably, you know, yeah. who, who could say, yeah. All right, so if you only like fantasy football and you don't like cryptocurrency, you can now log off. You can shut down your podcast player because we are going to talk about Bitcoin. We're going to talk about crypto. If you don't follow Josh and I on Twitter, you would know I'm something of a – I'm definitely a believer. I, I wouldn't call myself a, a true believer, but Josh is definitely – a, the most charitably would call him a skeptic. Uh, if you were making a joke, you'd call him a shit troll 
or something along those lines. So we're so, definitely, yeah. So, so we are going to talk about, about Bitcoin. And the, the most important question that I think I would like, I like to ask anyone that trolls coins, cryptocurrency is, is, is it, is it a belief about the space, just the fake internet money in general? Is it all, is it all shit coins or do you, do you view a, a difference between Bitcoin and all of the other, you know, quote unquote competitors? Wow. Um, so the, 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 the short answer is I kind of view them all the same. And the reason why is because the bad apples often take down even legitimate companies uh, in almost any space. Um, but I, but my, my, my distaste with Bitcoin goes much deeper than just that. I mean, I mean, so like just the ground rules and I don't want to like, 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 you know, like rehash old stuff or like, sure, either, like sure. Reddit level basic stuff. But I, I, I don't think we can, can we agree that Bitcoin isn't a currency currently? Yes, absolutely. We can. That does not, not to say that it can't ever become one. Right. But, but currently it's not a store of value. And that, that's right. One. No, it is not. Well, no, I do think it is a store of value. No, I do not think it works as like a buy cup of coffee. I do think it currently functions as a store of value. It's too volatile to be a store of value for the majority of people right now. And that gets into the idea of, is it an investment? Is it purely speculative? And I right, think right, right. It, it, it's a continuum, right? All investments entail risk. And so really it's about what's your appetite for risk. And then you can characterize something as an investment or, and that's safer, you know, and then you have speculation, which is a higher appetite for risk, which is, you know, on the other I mean, end, the, the skin in the game answer, though, for me is not as bullish as I sound because I have, you know, 30% of my net worth in mutual funds, much more comfortable, much more secure. And I have about 5% in Bitcoin. So the, okay. skin, the skin in the game answer is that I'm treating it like an investment, even if I would say on this podcast, I think it's a store of value. Okay, great. And so I think for most people, their appetite for risk um, is far, 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 far lower than what the Bitcoin uh, proposition is. Like it, I think the risk inherent in, in the coin, the fact that it could easily go to zero and that it's highly volatile even now um, is, is enough to say that I don't want to be the guy out there pimping it to mom and pa. Okay, all that aside, Bitcoin itself as a technology, as a technologist, as a guy with the software company and then my had a huge interest in the blockchain and had an interest in Bitcoin when it first started. Um, the, the kind of anarcho uh, kind of uh, seminal coin that to be able to buy whatever it is that you might want um, with free of government interference has just not come to pass in any way, shape or form that's tangible to me. Um, and so I think there's this fantasy land that the anarcho people, the anarchists really want to see occur. But I think that if you're an investor, what you want to see occur is you actually want the government to either back Bitcoin. And it's so, it's so interesting that these two diametrically opposed groups are the ones that are both interested. Because on one side, you have the, the side that would argue, you know, we want government money to go away forever. And if that leaves you dead, broke and poor, we don't care. We're the ones that won. And then on the other side, you have, you know, the Silicon Valley people that are like, how can we use this to take more money away from poor people? Which is, and it's, it's so interesting that those are the two people that have the highest amount of investment and attention in Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and the Silicon Valley people are literally buying Bitcoin and burying it underground. True. And, 
in underground servers and, and computers that are air gapped. Which, just- by the way, I think is a giant flag that, like, I I think that very rich people are starting to treat this as a safeguard against you know the U.S. dollar going to zero. Maybe, or it could just be fools. Um, you know, so I'm I'm a skeptic. I don't say I have the absolute answer, but when you put that in the the bigger picture of Bitcoin, I think it it, it kind of dovetails with the idea that, that there's a lot of bad thinking going on. People have made fun of people burying their money in the ground for millennia. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've gone too far afield. I'll let you continue with your questions. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, I think that this is the best way to have this discussion. The, the, a thing I'm picking up on from reading this book, The Bitcoin Standard, and just kind of trolling Reddit and wherever is you know, there really is this idea of sound and unsound money. And for a majority of human history, you know, the the proper way for money to exist is in a limited supply where no one could create it, make more of it. You know, it was a deflationary currency. And you have all these examples of, you know, they used to use seashells until it became too easy to get seashells picked up from the bottom of the ocean. And then, uh, you know, uh, African slave tribes used beads because that was a rare substance for them. And then the English or whoever, the colonizers found out, you know, we could buy anything from these people and they don't even know. And it's this horrible inflation. And so the argument from the Bitcoin people is this functions the same way that gold does, except there's not a government body behind it that can, you know, mandate its value. And so I, before even getting into the value of Bitcoin, I wanted to ask your opinion on the gold standard versus, you know, sort of government fiat by decree money controlled by central banks. Sure. Well, there's a good reason we moved away from the gold standard, and and that's because money can be created um, in in a way that helps the economy thrive and grow um, under fiat system that it can't um, with the gold standard. Um, It's really it limits what you can do. Um, So I understand the economic reasons in a capitalist economy to. Um, to, to go to move to fiat. But the thing that I think a lot of Bitcoin people don't realize is that Bitcoin itself is fiat money, not in the way that you might think. It's not fiat by government. It's just fiat by the people who own it. Right. But it has governance. Um, and, and to imagine that there is no governance associated with your coin is to completely ignore that the code itself is what governs Bitcoin and the people who write the code are the ones that control the code. And even if you assume benevolence on their part, they are still going to respond to incentives from the people who they- And, and the miners, the miners also have giant power over the blockchain right. as well. Right, and so if, 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 their, if their constituency, the Ethereum constituency or the Bitcoin constituency becomes 80% investors, then the governance of Bitcoin is going to skew towards their wants and desires. And so that's exactly what we have in the banking system. I mean, there's literally no difference between those two things. They are both fiat. They both have a governance structure. One is consolidated into nation states. Yes, I totally agree. The other one's consolidated into Jim, who's developing Ethereum with his buddies. Like, that's crazy to me. So, well, that's, so that's definitely an acceptable argument for being anti, like I, I would, I would say when I first got into crypto, I was definitely like an Ethereum shill, right? Like I was like, this is the future web two, web 3.0, like did like, uh, D apps or what, like, and I just think that that's like a good, 
version of like how transactions will work in the future. Like I, like if you don't think that like in 20 years, your credits are just going to be stored like in a chip in your brain and like you, like everything's just going to be processed that way. I think you're, I think you're wrong, but I don't think that that has future as like a, a very significant investment. Whereas I do think, I think that because Bitcoin you know, it doesn't, it's creator, I actually think is probably dead. I think whoever did it is probably dead because they, they would have sold off or at least some of the Bitcoin that they had and all of that original mind Bitcoin is gone. But the fact that no one can create more Bitcoin than is going to exist makes it what is possible to be. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins and there can't be any more or less, which I think is why people argue that it can be a store of value. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open to the idea, but for the fact that it's already been forked into Bitcoin Cash, and in the future, there's no reason why it couldn't be devalued by the governance structure. Um, there and, could be more forks. I mean, that's definitely a thing. And, and, so, and so if we accept that there's governance in Bitcoin, if we accept that in, in a limited way, it is fiat, just like any other currency, then I would want regulations surrounding it to make sure that bad actors don't take control and do things we all agree shouldn't happen. I think that regulation in a free market serves a hugely important purpose. And I think uh, that's something that anarchists and I will never agree upon. And, and so um, it isn't, the structure of Bitcoin isn't enough to, to damper man's worst impulses. And uh, we can we are capable collectively of some incredibly horrific things. And uh, I, I don't have trust in, in, in a small group of people to, to be the, the, the proper stewards of anything that I put my entire, if we're going to say that this is the, the de facto currency, that I put all my, 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 uh, my wealth into. That's, that's but all, all of your wealth is in U.S. dollars now, right? And that's controlled by a small pool. Yeah, but it's... It, it, at least nominally there they have to think about um uh the people right right um, and and so i think that's actually at the the core of why a lot of people when they dig into it don't like it and you know i'm sort of a classically like liberal leftist democratic sort of thinker and so when i think about a world where bitcoin is the central currency i definitely realize like poverty uh racism like 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 slave trading like all of that stuff exists in the anarcho-capitalist world where bitcoin is the main currency because there's not a government body that steps in and uses their various controls to do things and i think that a lot of bitcoin advocates like to sort of ignore that like they they that's not a main talking point of people that are really into bitcoin that like this world with no market regulations in the, it's, it's a sort of a lot like, you know, communist theory where like, it sounds really great, but a lot of people lose in that system. Yeah. Yeah. I think people lose whenever you can do things um, and there are no consequences to your actions and, and, and money, everything follows money. Um, some of the worst things we've ever, humans have ever been, have ever done have, have had money at the root of the motivation. And so um, I, I look, I think it's interesting in that it could make, it could make commerce more efficient. Um, I think we're close to efficiency, peak efficiency right now. Um, I mean, I'm certainly Amazon might get a drone, an overnight drone, and, and I could get something online and have it delivered tomorrow. And that, that's pretty damn efficient from my perspective. But 
really, when, it, when you get down to it, what you, and you strip away the governance part and the anarchist part, it's really a way to buy something that maybe the government doesn't want you to have, things like drugs or, or, uh, or, or maybe if you're you know, repressed, it might allow you to buy things in, in, a, in a nation state. I mean, yeah, it's best use case right now is for people who live in economies where the where the government money is hyperinflationary. So like South America and Africa, if you own Bitcoin in, in Venezuela or in Ecuador or whatever, you have a lot more money than you would have had you just sat your money in whatever Ecuadorian money is, you know? Yeah. And so I guess I, when I put all that together, I just don't see a, a reason for it to have the value it currently does. Um, I, there's no, well, in its value right now, there's this huge amount of speculation, right? Right. Like that. Right. I definitely agree on the price of like what it's probably $8,400 right now. Uh, yeah, Abs think... Absolutely. One Bitcoin is not worth that, but there's priced into that, that one Bitcoin could be worth a million dollars a hundred years from now. I don't, again, I don't, I don't know why that has to be true. I don't know why. It does not have to be true, but I certainly believe that is in the range of outcomes of things that could happen. Sure, sure. But I mean, we're talking about expected value of the thing over time. There's a time value of money, yeah. of your investment. I think that it's, it's just ridiculously overpriced for what it is right now. Um, and, and so even as an investment, a speculative investment, you're fishy money right now. If uh, I was if I was telling someone to speculatively invest on cryptocurrency, I would tell them to find very small market cap coins and kind of just try and ride the waves, right? Like Bitcoin as of right now is not an, an avenue to get rich, I don't think. Yeah, no, I think you're I think it's on the downslope to the long run average value, close to the true value. And I think we're not even close yet. Um so I think it'll fall, fall, fall. And then there's there is the complete possibility and i think it's probably a much larger probability than it ever being worth a million is that because of its uptake because of its continued popularity the government issues a coin with the full faith and credit anarchists won't care the rest of the country will apple didn't get to be the most valuable company in the history of the universe by doing a new thing they did it by doing an old thing well right um, in a way that people would accept in a way that made it easy in a way that took away their fears. Um, Government-backed coin would do all those things. So I definitely agree with you that the big thing in crypto is not here yet. The, the killer app, right, is not here yet. And so if it never comes, then yeah, it's, it's going to tail for a long time. But if the killer app does come, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, like, I don't know what could that even could possibly be. That's not in my realm. The, the move from zero to one is much harder in the realm of technology and innovation than the move from one to 100. Like the, the invention of the telegraph was a much larger creation than the move from the, you know, the telephone on the wall to the iPhone 10. Like just you're because- betting, You're betting on the idea now. Bitcoin itself doesn't have to be the one that wins. Correct. And, and and coins or blockchain currency might win. not. Yeah. But and, and I, I agree with that. That's definitely, definitely probably. And like I mentioned, that that probability is probably much, much higher than Bitcoin itself being worth X amount of money. Um, the problem is, is that the people who are the innovators rarely are the ones 
who actually reap the benefits economically. Yeah. So we'll see. I think, I think it's very interesting. I think that I definitely don't think that Bitcoin is in the threat of going to zero, but I definitely think that a lot of these other coins that people are invested in, I think there's a real possibility of some of them going to zero over a long enough timeline. If enough of them do, Bitcoin will take a large hit. And if the fish all sell out because they're afraid, then you're left with the cartels who are creating. Oh, the fish, the fish are gone right now. The, the Coinbase money right now is, is, is gone. I don't know. I think there's still idiot. I'm sorry. There are still foolish people out there and I've talked to them. My, my wife has put me in touch with them to try and talk them off the ledge. who are still talking about selling their car because of the dip. And, um, I, I mean that I would not suggest. I would not suggest. Of course you would. Only only a foolish person would think to do something like that. Um, but but that's that's the world we were living in in November, and I think there are still people thinking that way. I do think that ten percent of your net worth, provided you're not like actually poor, is like if you are secure, like you you're not in crazy amounts of debt. I think ten percent of your net worth is like a very acceptable amount of your money to have in Bitcoin right now. Cause I don't, I don't, I, I truly don't believe going to zero is, I think that it's more likely that Bitcoin is worth a hundred thousand dollars five years from now than it's worth zero five years from now. I think it's probable true value is below 2000 a coin long run. So it wouldn't matter. It doesn't need to go to zero if you're investing right now for you to take a complete bath. That's true. That's fair enough. I think this is what the people wanted. I think we gave the people what they wanted. Josh, thank you very much. Everyone, please follow him on Twitter at Frisco Josh. Read his fantasy content uh, at 44.com. Go to his website, airyards.com. You will definitely hear Airyards mentioned on your favorite tout show next year. And uh, yeah, just uh, guys, send me emails. Let me know guests you might like to have or whatever. And uh, we will we'll be back whenever I feel like posting another show.